are live here on the First Impressions podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all the haters. I am Kristen and I am here with Maggie. Hello. And I apologize if I sound a little scratchy because I was a karaoke superstar last night. (laughs) Kristen, what did you sing at karaoke? I sang Les Poissons. Mm. Les Poissons. Les Poissons. <laughs> yes, it went over really well. I was very sad. Didn't Renee Abogenois die recently? He did though? recently die. Yeah, that was Odo really on Star Trek. Yes. Uh, so saying it in his honor. In fact, Kevin added it to the play, like the cue. I was like, who's singing Le Poisson? He's like, you are. <laughs> That's so Kevin. I have other news. Uh, happy to announce that Netherfield Park has been let at last. <gasps> and we have a new tenant. Permanent tenant, forever tenant, named Mr. Bingley. And Mr. Bingley? A picture on the Facebook page. He is a Shih Tzu mix, and he is very cute. He is very cute. You might hear him. He has a little bit of a cough today. Yes, he has upper respiratory <laughs> infection. Kennel cough. They all come home with kennel cough, and then it's like a week of just misery. But, yeah. Well, I'm no. telling you, those old houses are very drafty. It makes sense <laughs> that Mr. Bingley would... Have a bit of a cough. Did we, did we have to summon the apothecary? I'm sure that Jane Austen um, would be able to tell us how best to treat Mr. Oh. Bingley's cough. Yes. Well, you know, I was reading and, you know, the point was made that there was um, sort of a democratization or, or everyone was a doctor back in Jane Austen's day because nobody had a doctor at hand or very few people did. And so everybody knew about these home remedies. There were, there were books published about them. It was part of being a housewife. You had to know how to doctor. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was changing. As of 1815, when uh, Parliament passed the Apothecary Act, it started to codify some of that medical knowledge and there was licensing. And the first issue of The Lancet was published in 1823. So good lead in, Margaret. Oh, well, thank you, Kristen. Our discussion of Sanditon. Today we are going to be talking about Sanditon, the novel fragment, which, um, you know, of course you can obtain and read, but was never finished by Jane Austen herself. And we will also talk about the first three episodes of Sanditon, the show airing in the U.S. on PBS. Um, And we have not seen the whole thing because in the U.S. we... Got it on a very delayed schedule, so it is only now coming out. Only the first three episodes have aired in the U.S. That's true. I don't know what you want me to say. <laughs> I just felt like I've been talking I for a long time. I have thoughts. <laughs> I'm delighted. <laughs> I'm delighted. I have extreme thoughts. I have thought, well, you probably have more thoughts about the novel. I do. Which I'm looking forward to hearing. I have many thoughts about the adaptation. <laughs> I am looking forward to hearing those. So let's get into it, Kristen. Yeah, let's well, talk I about Sanditon, which was yeah. written and not completed just prior to Jane Austen's death. So she wrote Sanditon. She wrote Sanditon uh, from January to March 1817. She stopped writing it in March when she became too ill to write. So it's it's short, but, um, and I had read it once and I had taken some things away from it that I was like, wow, this is so different. It's so unusual, but it's really not the Austin that I was going to Austin for at the time. It's no deep dive into feelings. It's no persuasion. You know, it's like she she took a, a very hard right turn um, where she's like, okay, uh, I wrote about, you know, the elevations of the human mind. Now I'm going to write a really broad satirical comic thing on very specific um, 
British economics and the state of medicine in the early 19th century. And I was like, okay, you know, this isn't going to be critical. I'm not going to take any lessons away from this book that I, you know, would have taken away from some of her heavier works. And at the time, before I understood how ill she really was, I was like, maybe she was done. Maybe she was done writing masterpieces and she was just going to write like comic farces. Like this is what she's. To be fair, uh, it really only is the beginning. So we don't know what was going to happen. But the tone of it is so hectically comic. I mean, it it is so much more of a satire. It really, and I think you said this, Margaret, it really has a lot in common with Northanger Abbey. Yes, isn't it interesting, those two, like the beginning and the end of her writing curse? Because to me, they're almost like companions. I think that Sanditon clearly reads as a more mature work, but the the tone and the way that the narrator works is very similar to me. Like you're saying, they're both clearly satire. You had said on our Facebook page that some things really struck you and when you first read the fragment. I did? No, yes, I did. <laughs> yes. You you said that the narrator feels a lot more like the Northanger Abbey narrator. It does. I mean, it could almost be the same person telling both stories. Oh, that's interesting. Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> well, uh, with Northanger Abbey, they were interested in the Gothic. And there is actually a character in Sanditon who is also obsessed with the Gothic in in a way that's not that different than Catherine Moreland. But you know what is different about Santin and Northern Abbey is the heroine, Charlotte Haywood versus Catherine Moreland. Yes. In Santin and Charlotte Haywood, we almost have an anti-Catherine Moreland in that she is incredibly rational. And while she does understand literature and connect the things she's seeing to the literature she's read, uh, she doesn't let her feelings get run away with. So there are two like examples, like when she first meets Clara Brereton, which those who have seen the show know is the um, niece of Lady, not the niece of Lady Denham, but the poor relation of Lady yes. Denham. She thinks, oh, this girl is a heroine. She's just like yeah. a heroine out of a novel. And I wrote in my copy, I'm like, wow, we're back to Northanger Abbey. Yes. And then it concludes but with... But Charlotte was much too level-headed to think that, you know, this was really true. And she came back down to earth. And I was like, whoa, okay, we're anti-Catherine Moreland now. That is exactly the word I would use to describe Charlotte. She's very level-headed. Whereas Northanger Abbey was sort of a vehicle to show the growth and maturity of Catherine. Charlotte is, like, already there. And so she is kind of like the observer of the folly around her. I feel like Charlotte is more of an audience surrogate character than Catherine is. One of the things Janet Todd, who, um, if you buy the Sandit in the fragment, you can get a copy of it with an essay by Janet Todd. One of the things she says is it has a lot in common with the other satires written in the day, where it's really about a stranger comes to town and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. observes the folly and ridiculousness of everything around him. So yes. she's like the level-headed avatar. But I love it because she'll, yeah. and she'll also just like sick burn people. Yes. <laughs> like we yes. were talking about this beforehand. She has a whole discussion. Is it Tom Parker or Sir Edward that she, about the books? Oh, it's in the uh, library. Sir Edward. Okay, where he's going on and on and on, and at the end she's just like, I think we have very different tastes <laughs> in novels. <laughs> Sir 
Edward is, if you've watched the show, there are a couple of major differences. Really, the, really the fragment just sort of sets up who everybody is right. and a little bit of, tiny little bit of plot, and then it ends. So, for so example, a lot of- Sydney does not appear in the book. He's just referenced by other characters. He comes in in a carriage and they have like a very brief conversation in which he has no, I don't think he has any quoted dialogue. Um, but yeah, but you, we knew. All- you knew as soon as you were, you're like, Oh, okay. So this is the, like, yeah. So, yeah, this is the romantic interest character. Right. But we, right. We do not get at him. He's not a Mr. Darcy in Sanditon. He is not aloof. He is not rude. He is not constantly saying, Miss Haywood, there you are again. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta save it for the end, Kristen. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. He, he is just, he's supposed to be a funny guy. So we yeah. get um, information from Tom Parker about, oh, Sydney's hilarious. He's always saying hilarious things. He's always making fun of our uh, hypochondriac brother and sisters. And um, so the, the there there are much more hectically satirical comic things that happen in the fragment in um, that that come from Diana Parker, who's in the show, and Arthur Parker, who are both the hypochondriacs. And actually in the fragment, there's a third sister as well. But the, what you need to know about the difference between the fragment and the show is that Davies really did take, for the most part, the characters that Austin created. He made some shifts in the characters so they're less ridiculous um, and more a little more relatable because this is so satirical and he, Davies wanted to write a show where there was a lot of romance and sex so that he had to some do that. Some changes, Kristen? <laughs> some changes? Well, yeah, no. I'll, I mean, a lot, a, of the, now. a lot of the characters are essentially as they, like, their major characteristics are essentially as they are laid out in the book fragment. But they, you know, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that Austin was not going to take this into incest and um I will agree on some, I don't know, because the changes that are there are just like so glaringly huge. <laughs> I don't know. Let's just talk. Okay, let's just do it. I'm just going to say it. Yes. Well, at they, one they, minute, make they and it, no, I'm just we're doing it, Kristen. Oh, okay. I just have to get it off my chest. Sydney, they made him a Mr. Darcy. He's not, like, you already mentioned this. He's not brooding. Okay, but in the show, he is. Where did that come from? He's supposed to be, like, a gregarious fellow. Nope. And, okay, can we talk about the incest? Because what the hell, Christine? Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, that I think there is a basis for saying that Clara Brereton is going to turn out to be a schemer who is trying to use Sir Edward Denham as much as he is trying to use her. And they I think are- that is a very interesting change, and I don't have, or I mean, is it a change we don't even really know, right? right. I don't have any problem with that. I have a problem with the, the incest between the siblings. I just don't understand you it at what? all. But she says explicitly that he's her stepbrother. So is it really, is this like- Okay, do you want to have like a cruel intention? Are we going to discuss now? Like, <laughs> no, I don't know. But yeah, yeah, that's very Davies, isn't it? He's like, he has to see- Hidden sex everywhere. It's, well, what I will say, though, is about saying it in a fragment, first of all, I loved reading it. I felt like yes, it was so fresh, so fun. It felt like new Austin. It was, a, it was funny. It was so funny. And the great thing is that because it's not something that necessarily would resonance, resonate with us in the same way, it's not a sacred cow. You can yeah. take these characters who are ridiculous and there's a lot of ridiculous stuff going on. You can take them and you can have fun with them and you can explore them. And I I love Sanditon, the, the movie, because I have no emotional investment in 
the content of Sanditon, the book being represented faithfully in the screen. Because honestly, Sanditon as, as a book, as it was going to be written, as I said, it's about yeah. medical it science. It's about like, the book doesn't exist. It's about political economy. And those things would not apply necessarily to, or maybe they would in, in 2019, but... Um, I think that, and we will talk about this more at the end, but I think that you just, if you just think of it as a costume drama, it's, (laughs) it's not, it's not Jane Austen. It has nothing to do with Jane Austen. So as long as you are cool with that, then it's just just fun, right? It's just like crazy Andrew Davies costume drama. And then you don't get bent out of shape. No, you don't. And, and it's just think of it as Jane Austen fan fiction. It's just exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But so there are cu- there are three angles that we have to talk about Sanditon in the novel. Yes. First, we have to talk about how Jane Austen discusses novels in Sanditon. Because again, we're back to Northern Abbey where Austen has some more thoughts on novels. Second thing is we have to talk about Jane Austen and medical science. And, and, and I won't say any more about that. And then we have to, t- we have to talk about capitalism, including the question, was Sanditon going to fail or was it going that's to an interesting question. All right. So there is a long passage in Sanditon, and we can't, I don't think we can read all of the relevant parts here, but I'll read a selection about, um, there's, so the character of Sir Edward Denham, who is the one, the blonde, t- tall, blonde guy, you know, in the adaptation, who's got the, who's doing the incest with his stepsister, whatever. He, his char- character has changed a lot because in Sanditon, the fragment, he is obsessed with literature and big words but he's reading it all completely wrong and just is not very bright. And so has taken away the idea that he wants to be a villain from all of these novels <laughs> that he's reading, that the villain is the thing to aspire to, that passion is a thing to aspire to. And I, I will read this dialogue from him. I am no indiscriminate novel reader. The mere trash of the common circulating library I hold in the highest contempt you will never hear me advocating those puerile emanations with detail nothing but discordant principles incapable of amalgamation or those vapid tissues of ordinary occurrences from which no useful deductions can be drawn. In vain may we put them into a literary alembic. We distill nothing which can add to science. You understand me, I am sure. Uh, it's like and, those and, books are trash. Yeah, he goes on to say... The novels which I approve are such as display human nature with grandeur, such as show her in the sublimities of intense feeling, such as exhibit the progress of strong passion from the first germ of incipient susceptibility to the utmost energies of reason half dethroned. (laughs) Okay, so this I love for many reasons. The first thing that occurred to me on reading this was to laugh aloud at how Austin was skewering her own literary critics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. E.J. Cleary says specifically, this is a this could be a response to uh, Walter Scott uh, writing a review of Emma, saying that it's so tepid that the passions are all tempered by financial considerations. And it, actually, E.J. Cleary says maybe this is the reason Austin made persuasion so much about uh, deep love and romance was a right. reaction to this stupid idea that she wasn't writing about passions. But I love the idea that Austin's critics are saying, it's not big. There aren't big themes. There aren't big emotions. And she's putting those words into this freaking ridiculous nonsense guy. Yes, yes, yes. This ridiculous doofus. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. And his his word salad of ridiculous 
Spanish words makes him sound so ridiculous. And then she goes on to say he's taking all the wrong lessons. You know, she, she talks about Richardson, who, who wrote Clarissa, who, of course, she was a huge fan of Richardson. Oh, man, I have strong feelings about that one, too. <laughs> uh, his fancy had been early caught by all the impassioned and most exceptional parts of Richardson's, and such authors as had since appeared to tread in Richardson's steps, so far as man's determined pursuit of women in defiance of every opposition and feeling and convenience was concerned. Um, and I, we know she loved Richardson, right? But she was saying, like, look, you got to start. We, we got to do something about these novels where it's just about a guy, you know, pursuing a girl who does not want him. And doesn't, just this reference of male violence in these novels. Doesn't she specifically say, like, he wanted to be a Lovelace? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, who is the main character of Clarissa, who is how I fell in love with Sean Bean when I was 12. Nice. And then I realized later that that's deeply fucked up. Uh, character. <laughs> He's awful. <laughs> he does. Sir Edward's great object in life was to be seductive, mm-hmm. which such personal advantages as he knew himself to possess and such talents as he did also give himself credit for. He regarded it as his duty. He felt that he was formed to be a dangerous man quite in the line of the Lovelaces. It's I was there. born to seduce women. <laughs> no. There is the- a lot, you know, I made a joke earlier about cruel intentions, but I think there actually is a lot of kind of dangerous liaison style stuff in this. And perhaps that's part of the satire, these like over dramatic kind of archetypes. And he is intent on seducing Clara Brereton and thinks, oh, I'll take her to Timbuktu. I'll abduct her. <laughs> and then he's like, I don't have enough money. So really, I'm just going to have to quietly disgrace her, meaning, you know, abduct her and ruin her. Like Lydia, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, the quietest, the quieter kind of disgrace. And I wrote in my, not my, I wrote in my notes, seduction on a budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they can't afford this. Like, I take her to Olive Garden for unlimited salad and breadsticks. <laughs> Hey, I don't know. I mean, that sounds like a great date to me. I mean, I would go. I love Olive Garden. (laughs) Sean Bean's like, Margaret, we shall go to Olive Garden. And I'm like, yes. Although, are you really being seduced if you're just, like, down? (laughs) If you're, like, DTF, are you really being seduced? Or are you just kind of like, let's do it? (laughs) <laughs> it's an interesting question for the ages uh, or do you just let them you just pretend and let him feel good about himself that he seduced you when really you're the one just like Clara you're the one doing the seduction layers upon layers yeah no so the way that Austin leaves it is that we see one scene with Clara and this ridiculous sed- just seductive Sir Edward in public where she's totally not into it she's pr- behaving with utmost propriety and, and Charlotte heartily approves and then Right before the fragment ends, we get this tantalizing glimpse where Charlotte and, just like in the show, Charlotte and um, Mrs. Just like in the show? Just like in the show, Kristen? Charlotte and Mrs. Parker are walking to Lady Denim's. Charlotte steps forward and sees, uh, over a hedge or whatever, um, Clara and Sir Edward sitting close to each other, clearly in a lover's conference. All right, that's... That's what Austin wrote. Davies um, took it um, in a Davies direction. There's a hand job, Kristen. <laughs> I never, I never, I gasped and I clutched my pearls. I couldn't believe it. I was 
so upset. <laughs> Did I, didn't I text you? Yes. <laughs> is there a hand job in my Austin? And you were like, that appears to be what is happening. <laughs> oh, I was so upset. And then I think it was after the incest. That was just when I made the decision to be like, you know what? This just isn't Jane Austen. So I'm not going to get upset about it. No, it's mean, just mean. Andrew Davies. We knew, we knew, but I, I don't mind. I don't mind taking these these characters that she created, doing all kinds of fan fictiony things. Yeah, with that's because you a freak. Okay. Anyway, sorry, we're talking about capitalism. I'm just gonna sip my tea over here. <laughs> Are you no. sipping your tea like Kermit in that meme? <laughs> <laughs> that's the tea. <laughs> and so we we can go back to, but, oh, 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 here's another thing that I have to say with regard to Austin talking about novels and talking about writing, there's a, uh, there are two other things. There's a uh, passage where Esther Denham, right, the sister of Sir Edward, is obviously unhappy to be poor. Even in the fragment, she's obviously unhappy to be poor. Well, yeah, I mean, I can, that, that's fair. It's fair. And then later in the fragment, Esther is talking to Lady Denham and she is seen being an utter suck up by Charlotte. And Charlotte realizes, oh, she's just sucking up to Lady Denham for her money. And so it says here that the young lady on the other end of the bench was doing penance was indubitable. The difference in Miss Denham's countenance, the change from Miss Denham sitting in cold grandeur in Mrs. Parker's drawing room to be kept from silence by the efforts of others. To Miss Denham at Lady Denham's elbow, listening and talking with smiling attention or a solicitous eagerness was very striking and very amusing or very melancholy, just as satire or morality might prevail. Mm. Isn't this a microcosm of Austen? Mm -hmm. She is is detailing the folly of other people, and it's either hilarious or... It's melancholy. It's 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 sad. Wow, this person is just debasing themselves, and that's just sad. It's what Austin writes about. It's funny and and morbid or macabre or just pathetic all in one ball. One of the things I was thinking when I was reading this is that Charlotte to me is like Austin in her own life. Does that make? Do you know what I'm saying? Where. Charlotte, it's like almost not uh, not semi autobiographical, obviously, but I feel like she created a character like Charlotte, which is kind of like how she feels walking through the world and observing around her. Like Charlotte comes in as kind of an outsider and just observes the people around her. And I was very struck that this seems to be kind of, she is perhaps not a, oh, I don't know. I mean, I didn't know Jane Austen. I don't know how, you know, quote, witty she was with her <laughs> acquaintance. If her letters are any indication, she was very witty. Um, but at least it seems like the most kind of Jane Austen-like heroine we've had. I could not agree more with you. And Yay! I'm going to tie this in. So completely agree. And you may have noticed in this fragment that there is so much more of the language of science mm-hmm. um, that we have ever seen in Austin before. Science, of course, at that time, just being the, the systematic way of thinking based on observations, acquiring knowledge through observation, right? 
Charlotte is a scientist. She yes. is going through the world. She is making observations and she is making decisions based on those observations. There is a scholar named Gregory Tate who wrote an article that I read in, in um, pr to prepare for this podcast called Austin's Literary Alembic, Sanditon, Medicine, and the Science of the Novel. And he is basically saying Austin was herself a scientist attempting use, to use the form of the novel to observe people, to write down the ridiculous things they did, and to try to figure out what that actually meant, and to try to learn more about the world from doing that. And I could not agree more. I don't know if she thought of herself as a scientist before this, or this was just coming out of Jane Austen's mind, as I'm going to take a scientific approach to dissecting people, or even if she had that at the top of her mind. But I think there's so much language of science in this novel that makes it clear that she was aware of scientific thought of the day, the, the state of science of the day, right? That is a very interesting um, idea. I'm still like think I'm mulling over what you just read that essay was about how she used the novel for her to understand the world around her. And the only thing I would say is I feel like it's more holding up a mirror for the audience. Yes. Now, right. Not just her to understand, yeah. but to come to a, to write a treatise, right? She's writing like a scientific treatise. Yeah, on, oh, it's I, basically I to be like, y'all are crazy. And here's yes. why. Yes. As like she holds it up. Charlotte is doing science through observation. And so is Austin doing, yeah. <laughs> doing a type of science through literary observation. That's, that's what he says. Now I have even a different take on um, this, but I'm going to talk about it a second. The last thing I want to talk about in Sanditon is Charlotte says this amazing thing that I just love where they're talking about Sir Edward is now moved on to talking about poetry. God help us. <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking about burns and the, the passion and this, the poet burns. Right. And Charlotte says, I have not faith in the sincerity of burns. Uh, he apparently this poet was a notorious philanderer. Mm -hmm. Right. So Charlotte says he felt and he wrote and he forgot. Yes. Which I, I love. And I think yes. it's such an indictment of that Austin is holding up towards these male poets who are supposedly writing this elevated language of elevated passion and then just doing whatever in their personal lives. Yeah. Like they're just actually dicks. But see, yeah. that's why I love Charlotte because she doesn't have time for your nonsense. No, she doesn't. She's like, and don't come at me with burns. Like he, that guy. What <laughs> So it's like, why should I care what uh, this person has to say about love when they are just a total jerk? <laughs> what do they know? What do they know? And, and Austin, I think, is different. Austin did not feel and write and then forget. She was building an understanding of the world through her work. That's what I think. Well, it's just similar to that part in Persuasion where Anne Elliot has the discussion with... Um, Oh, what's his name? The guy about like male versus oh, female novelists. And, yeah. It just reminded me a lot of that, you know, kind of why should we look to men for these kind of truths when they don't live it? What do they know? Exactly. What are they men? What, what are they, they good know? for? <laughs> and I, I, there's still this running commentary of like men. Yes. <laughs> just really quick to get back to what you were saying about medicine and the language. Were you surprised, as I was, to see the word quackery? Yes, I was. I didn't know that that was a thing back in the 1800s. That, to me, that felt like such a modern term. 
Um, and then to see it appear there, it was very jarring. Um, this is so just because I had no idea it was so, it was slang that was so old. No, I know. I neither did I. And this is so important because in referring to quack medicine, what what Austin is doing throughout the whole novel is pitting quack medicine and lay medicine against what she perceives as the more reliable professional medicine of the time. We already have set, set her up as someone who believes in science and she is someone who believed that professional medicine was being based on science, right? And she was saying what everybody is saying today. It was like, look, we have to listen to these guys who know what they're talking about, yeah. right? It's like the same exact thing now. Although it's easy as a modern audience to be like, I see what you're saying, Jane, but you also believe some crazy shit oh, uh, because they God. just didn't have as much understanding. Although no. look at now. I mean, we have an anti-vax movement. So no. look at it. Okay. We can I have to get off our modern high horse. I was, sa- I was saving this. But I'm going to read this right now. Okay, so this is from a letter from March 1817. Austin is discussing a niece of hers who is ill. They don't know what she has, but they've been told by the physician that she has water on the brain. Okay. And here is from, uh, here here is the passage. Little Harriet's headaches are abated, and Sir Ev is satisfied with the effect of the mercury and does not despair of a cure. The complaint, I find, is not considered incurable nowadays, provided that the patient can be young enough not to have the head hardened. The water in that case may be drawn off by mercury. But though this is a new idea to us, perhaps it may have been long familiar to you. I read this as Austin thinks she has acquired and has learned a real piece of medical knowledge that has been by science. Um, That's the way that I, I... read it. And I just, I was set when I read this. And then when I read Sanditon, I sat there with the wind knocked out of me. Yeah. Well, people don't understand that. First of all, anecdotes do not equal data. That was the, the science of the science in Jane Austen's time, right? Where they're like, the sea will cure you. It once mm-hmm. upon a time, it cured somebody. So it will cure you. Right. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand the placebo effect and people still, it's very hard to reject what you see and experience yourself. So if you know of one person who was helped by something, it's yes. it's very human. It's very human to be suspicious. And so you, I, I understand where it's coming from. I, I have to tell you, I started watching um, the Goop Lab, which is on Netflix in preparation for this podcast. And oh. the second, this, I swear to God, the second episode, they are immersing themselves in cold water, and <laughs> it's like this is Sanditon all over again. Yes. Yeah. I read a book recently that was really interesting. I mean, this is way off topic, but it was very interesting where the idea that we got in the 1980s as Americans that a low fat diet was the healthiest type of diet. It turns out it was all based on like one medical study that was later completely discredited. Yes. And so that is what basically brought about our, this is, I'm making this statement, having read some other things on it, including one of my favorite books, which is called Salt, Sugar, Fat. But basically in the 1980s, when Americans became obsessed with the idea of low fat diets, it led to the huge exponential increase in our sugar intake. Yes. Because we became so obsessed and frightened of the idea of fat, including good fats, that the food processors and makers replaced everything with fat with sugar. And that's when you start seeing like the rise of obesity and the rise of diabetes and hypertension and all these horrible things. And it's because we completely rejected based on poor evidence, the idea of healthy fats in our diet. Nutrition science 
that is that is where it's really like kind of a crock a lot of the time right I know they're just the food companies do all these studies and they're just trying to get us to buy more shitty food Yes. And so, and here's what I'm saying. And sorry to go off on, on this long thing, but like, Welcome as you know, first Ma- impressions podcast, a nutrition <laughs> podcast. I know, no, I know, but me- because I'm in the field of medicine, right. But like yeah. tangentially, but I will just say this, bringing it back to the fragment, when you read this and you think, wow, they were so uninformed, <laughs> right. It's amazing. The parallels, but you know, what absolutely struck me and I had no idea I didn't know. I had never studied, you know, the science of, in Regency, the state of science in Regency times. I didn't know. And there's this passage where Arthur Parker, who is a hypochondriac, who is clearly not that ill, right, um, but is looking for attention and enjoys the idea of fancying himself sick and doctoring himself. It's something to do. It's something that gives him importance, right? He has just stated that if he drinks t- green tea, it takes away the use of his right side for like several he has a hours. Stroke. <laughs> <laughs> he has neurological impairment if he drinks green tea. Oh, but if he drinks alcohol in moderation, he finds that he oh, can function yes. quite well. I, that me, I can't be bilious, right? But um, Charlotte says it sounds rather odd to be sure," answered Charlotte coolly. "But I dare say it would be proved to be the simplest thing in the world by those who have studied right sides and green tea scientifically <laughs> and thoroughly understand all the possibilities of their action on each other." And I mean, when I read this, I was floored. I I didn't know. I didn't know Austin was interested in science. I didn't know any of the, that that I this was even part of her. Seen, yeah, we've never seen any of that before that yes. I can think of. And here, here she is placing her trust in medical science. I mean, even when they went to Winchester uh, at the end of her life, they were seeking better medical advice. They they still put their trust in science up to the end. And there is a theory, of course, that she died because of arsenic poisoning. Yeah. Um, the, the, oh, sorry. I took away your thunder. No, no. I'm just agreeing with you. It's just, it's sad though, right? Right. So she was rheumatic. Rheumatism was often doctored by arsenic, apparently. And one theory is she could have died by arsenic poisoning. She does say something about my face is black and white and every wrong color, which arsenic poisoning does discolor of skin. The other two theories, if you're interested in looking more into this, is that she either had Addison's disease or a lymphoma. And there's so much you can read about this. But I think that that theory is particularly poignant in the in the face of this context that we are giving her of of putting her trust in medical science. Yeah, they, they basically killed her because they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is really sad. Um, On a lighter note, I just want to point out that Arthur is actually one of my favorite characters in the miniseries. I think he's just delightful because he is not. People say things and other people gasp, and Arthur like bursts out laughing. And he's like, "Very good, good job." He's just like, he's so has such little shame maybe (laughs) although he is I do like that he's kind of a chubber and he's afraid (laughs) to go like he's afraid to strip nude in front of his and then finally he's like screw it he He goes and has a good time I don't know I just I really like that character he is kind of annoying with his hypochondria but he's just so he's such um when he's in those group situations they make him kind of just like a delightful spirit do you know what I'm saying does this make any sense at all Yes, yes, it's making sense. And of course, I mean, of course, that is Davies, but I like that character, too. And I was sort of like, why are they trying to make this physical comedy of this guy getting, like, nude who is not 
super thin, but it doesn't read as like, we're all haha, we're all laughing. It reads as he's having fun. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm okay with this. It started off like that, but then it actually turned into a really great character moment where he didn't, he was not going to be left behind by his insecurities. Um, And as someone who struggled with weight, like her whole life, I, I don't know. I appreciate that. I don't like it when they make the haha he's fat isn't that funny which we've talked about before where there's been like thoughts where Jane Austen was making a fat joke and stuff oh, like yeah. that and I don't I don't think that's what's happening in the fragment there's it's more of like satire right like w- what he's saying and what he does are completely at odds with one another and there's such lack of self-awareness that's yes. the joke yes it's well, not there's... like oh he eats a lot isn't it funny <laughs> No, I hear you. And there is that one line that makes you hate Charlotte where she's like, I would recommend more exercise to you than I suspect you've been in the habit of taking. Yeah. Like, Shut well, up, she's Charlotte. she's not wrong, but, though. Well, Come on. <laughs> yeah, no. It, I mean, if I was toast and walk more. We can, we can get over. I mean, he is, like, sneakily eating the butter. As long as we can get over the fact that Austin had the same, you know, prejudices as everybody of her time, right? We just have to move past right. it, I guess. But here's a question. Here's my other question related to medical science is how did Austin really feel about her own illness? Because some see it when you first read Sanditon and you know, she was dying. She's like, this is hilarious. She was really sick and she was making fun of hypochondriacs. Was she making fun of herself? And well, no, she died three months later. I mean, she literally was actually sick. Here are are things we do know. Uh, We know that hypochondriacs really have irritated her for like her entire life. So in almost every novel, there's annoying hypochondriac characters. Mrs. Bennett with her nerves, Mary Musgrove, Mr. Woodhouse. I feel like Miss Bates is kind of like that. Although I guess there's not as much like she's a hypo. I don't know. She just seems annoying. (laughs) <laughs> she just seems annoying. Okay, fair. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that she uses the satire to express that anger, right? Yes. Okay. And so here's what I want to say. So we often refer to Jane Austen's mother as a hypochondriac. She absolutely was. And I wasn't sure of the citation. So I went on on Twitter and... um I went out on Twitter and I asked like my Jane Austen tweeps, like, why do we say Jane Austen's mother is a hypochondriac? Because I would love to be able to like know what I'm talking about if I say this on the podcast. And so hold on. And so uh, Devonine Lozer super kindly replied to me. And she said, see the snippet from Juliet McMaster in Jane Austen, the novelist, page 69, citing Austen's letters. Jane Austen herself had her own experience of parents who play invalid. Here's a quote from the letter. My mother continues hearty. Her appetite and nights are very good, but her bowels are still not entirely settled. And she sometimes complains of an asthma, a dropsy, water in her chest, and a liver disorder. (laughs) (laughs) I think that letter is very speaking. And there is another um, snippet, another kind of tweet wrote back, Heather Mall uh, responded to me and she said, my fave is this one from 1798. Uh, the, here's the quote from the letter. I am very grand indeed. I had the dignity of dropping out my mother's laudanum last night. Right? So she, oh, I think it's fair to say, had to deal with hypochondriac all her life. And rather than making, f- and when you read her letters, when you read her letters, she is always making fun of herself. 
and her condition. She is referring to herself as a sad honey or we're talking, oh, I'm a very genteel patient. I got an yeah. airing. Right? I think she has a horror of seeming to complain to other people and being thought a hypochondriac because this has always been her 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 bugaboo, right? With or her she's mother. like actually dying and yet, oh, I'm doing okay. Yes, I suspect yeah. she became even more resentful of hypochondriacs mm-hmm. as her real condition deteriorated. Oh, of course. Like, can't, I can't imagine anything worse than someone who, like, sucks all the energy and time for nonsensical, made-up ailments when you're, like, literally dying. I was just... I had always thought that. I was like, I love that Austin wrote about how annoying sick people are when she was sick. <laughs> I also find it really interesting the language that people used back then to describe their ailments. Things like, oh, well, gosh, my I have such a problem of my liver. or And, like, they probably don't even actually know what the liver does. No. You know, like, I'm sure Jane Austen's mom did not actually know what the liver does. <laughs> and yet it's like, oh, my liver. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I also feel like... You know, everyone was obsessed with health, right? Are your family are in good health? I feel like if you came out and you said you were sick, nobody had a BS meter for that. So everybody took you seriously and you could get a lot of attention by pretending to be sick, right? And now it's seen as like polite to just say, oh, we're doing great. Now, let me ask you a question, Kristen. If someone, say an acquaintance, like someone at work, a work friend, colleague is like, how are you? Do you tell the truth? No, never. Yeah. Never tell the truth. <laughs> Nowadays, it's kind of like, oh, how are you? And you're like, oh, I'm good. And really, you're just like, had your heart broken or you have a cold. You know, we just have this idea, like your med- your medical state is something private. But then there are still people who are hypochondriacs and make it everyone's business. So I don't know. But it seems like less socially acceptable to be like, oh, my liver. Right. Well, and it's certainly more unusual. I think we all have like a little better grounding in like how things work that if you are the juice cleanse person, people are rolling their eyes at you. Right. And we also have more to talk about, to be honest. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's something to talk about. Yeah, it is. You know is. what I mean? Like, what yeah. would you talk about back then? The weather, yeah. gossip, your health. Do you know what I mean? So, what I'm just, we just, I took, just took my mom to see my fair lady. Um, at the Kennedy Center as the, the touring company came through. And when she goes to <laughs> Ascot, they're like, I've told her to stick to two things, her health and the weather. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was like what people would talk about. Yeah. And then, of course, Eliza tells the story of uh, <laughs> uh, her aunt dying of the flu, but no one believed it was the flu. They thought they poisoned her <laughs> to get her strong. <laughs> That's the two straw hat is them's that done her in. (laughs) (laughs) Best scene in the whole movie. Oh my god, (laughs) so brilliant. (laughs) So good. My mom was saying she enjoyed the show better live than the movie, which is kind of crazy because that movie is fucking magnificent. (laughs) Um, But I'm just saying, like, it was more that was a regular topic of conversation was what are your medical problems? Go. Because that was a way of, of sharing information and possibly getting better at self-doctoring, which, yeah. like like we keep saying, anecdotes are not data. Well, but of course, go to Google like any reasonable person. Like any reasonable person, sure, sure. You know what? I meant to talk about the curious case of Mrs. Churchill, right? Who everyone thinks is a hypochondriac and malingerer, and then she dies. Yeah. 
there can be, there can be, if you, if you real hypochondriacs, uh, create a resentment in non hypochondriacs that then gets translated and put onto people who are actually sick. Right. And so it's this whole thing. Well, let's talk about just so we can get to the fun stuff of talking about the show really briefly. There is a ton of content in Sanditon, the fragment about economy, about political economy, about capitalism, right? This is a sort of the wealth of nations had come out in the post-war years. Um, This conversation was going on around England at this time. Pamphlets were being printed. Treatises were being written. Everybody understood that, you know, this was happening in, in, in sort of basic ideas about supply and demand, right? Like what happens if prices raise? Do what happens if money is infused into a community? Does it make the poor good for nothing? That kind of thing. So Sanditon is full of these dialogues between these characters on, on political economy. And, and this is shown in the show, too. Tom Parker really thinks that, you know, he's, we know he is speculating on Sanditon. Mm-hmm. We know he's investing money and he expects to make more money. And this is not making money by uh, your rents on your land or your farming or you're not inheriting it. This is a new way of getting wealthy, right? So the question arises, how was Sanditon going to end? What yeah. did think about this kind of speculation? What was she trying to say about it? I don't think that we have enough really information in the fragment we have to predict whether Sanditon would make it or not. So here's, I don't think I would trust Mr. Parker with my money. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I could see it going either way. Like maybe it ends where it goes under, but maybe it ends that it's actually successful or maybe it ends where it's still not sure. So here are some things you need to know in order to make an informed decision. And oh, I don't want to make an informed decision. What's the if- fun of that? If you really, I will not belabor this because I know not everybody is interested in this as I am. In capitalism? No, in in Sanditon and whether it was going to succeed or fail. Okay, but I mean, this is an episode about Sanditon. So if people aren't interested in it, then they probably wouldn't have made it this far. I'll try to keep it short and interesting, all right? But if you are at all interested in it, because I've been reading about this all week. And I have, like, galaxy brain now. You know, like the meme where you, like, know something, then you know something else, then you know yeah, something else yeah. in your galaxy. I have galaxy brain about this. I actually went to a Jane Austen tea yesterday with some friends, and we were supposed to be talking about Pride and Prejudice. And I was like, so, Sanditon. And I talked for, like, 20 minutes about, like, the corn laws and shit. And I cannot believe they didn't stab me. Um, Wait, you went to a Jane Austen tea? That sounds fun. Yeah, I won it at the other Jane Austen tea. I put a <laughs> raffle ticket in a bag. And so I got my own private Jane Austen tea with three of my friends from Boise who are Austen fans. And I was like, some of them, ha- you know, were casual Austen fans. And I was like, let's all read the book and watch a movie. And we'll talk about Pride and Prejudice. And we talked about Pride and Prejudice for like a little while. And then something came up and I was like, well, you know, the corn laws. And then I was like, <laughs> <laughs> off <laughs> to the races. So hopefully I got it out of my system so that my podcast listener, but it really is more appropriate for the podcast, right? I had, I actually had to text everybody and apologize afterwards. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. So if you are interested in this question at all, you must read an author named E.J. Cleary, who wrote, who is famous because she wrote a book uh, for many things, I'm sure, but you may have heard of her because she wrote a book called Jane Austen, The Banker's Sister, um, which is about um, Jane Austen's brother, Henry. She also wrote a great article called Conversations on Political Economy in Sanditon by E.J. Cleary. It's published in Persuasions Online. 
here are some things you need to know about what was going on in England in 1817 when Austin was writing Sanditon. Okay, the war was over. As we all know, post-war economies are... This is the Napoleonic War. Napoleonic War was over. Post-war economies are always insane. What had happened is also a volcano had erupted, right? And in 18... 16 was known with, as the year without a summer. All the crops oh, shut failed. up, really? I didn't yes. know this. Why did the <laughs> volcano erupt? Was it like Iceland? I don't even know. You can't just be like a volcano erupted and then not tell me. Uh, okay, Google. Where did a volcano erupt in 1815? Oh, wow. Uh, Indonesia. Okay. April 1815, the largest volcanic eruption in recorded history. Right. So... The poor were starving. There were the corn laws were passed um, the year before, which were protectionist. They kept the price of grain artificially high, right? To, it was protecting noblemen at the expense of poor people. Right. Also, the nobility um, were doing p- badly because of the post-war economy. So they convinced Parliament to take off their income taxes and instead t- tax commodities, which of course disproportionately hurt poor people who are trying to buy commodities. So sales tax. Yes, the the nation was inflamed. Um, And when we think about Mr. Haywood, Charlotte's father, there are some people who read Sanditon who think, okay, Tom Parker is clearly going to fail. Jane Austen was a Tory sympathizer, and she was going to make a point that, oh, Mr. Haywood, people like the Haywoods are the good guys, right? They're the landowners. They're the old guard. Well, you have to think about him. He did not improve the road that the Parkers overturned on in the very first scene of the novel. Mm. He, his cottages are not up to date. They're tenements. They're not, they're, they are crap uh, to paraphrase. Right. <laughs> and, and Mr. Parker is trying to achieve some, a new way of making money, but he has focused on doing it by creating a spa town. Now, what you need to know about, you know, seaside towns is that, because the wars were over, instead of going to spa towns and ha- having a good time and spending their money, all the rich people in England were going overseas. They were going to France. They were going right. to Switzerland. Speculating on a spa town in this environment was a sure ticket to doom. Okay. Also, Austin's brother, Henry, was a banker and a speculator with a personality a lot like Tom Parker's. By this time, his bank Henry had failed. His, fail- his bank had failed. He had gone bankrupt. He had taken on a new career as a clergyman. Right? It did not work out for him. But you have to understand that Austin loved her brother Henry, loved his speculative nature, did not blame him for what happened, and she herself was a speculator on her own novels, right? So mm, instead of mm-hmm, selling that's the copyright, true. instead of selling the copyright up front, she covered the production costs and then tried to make money back on what she sold, right? And so here's the final kicker for me, okay? The Austin ladies at this time, Jane, her sister, and her mother, living on Chawton Cottage, their financial future was very uncertain. Their brother, Edward, who was the rich brother that was, they were living on his estate, he was being sued. Henry's bank had failed. They were very much hoping to inherit money from their rich uncle and aunt, the Lee Perros, Lee Parrots. I don't know if I'm saying it right. And after Jane stopped writing Sanditon, her uncle did indeed die, and they did not inherit anything. And upon hearing this news, she went into hysterics, and her health had a terrible setback. And I think the stress and the strain 
of those financial circumstances and the waiting on someone else to die so yeah. you can have financial security, which, by the way, is a huge theme yes. in all of Austin's novels. The sickness of what that does to people. Austin absolutely would not want to have held up this kind of economy that makes people live this way. I think it is unlikely that she would meant to write a binary. She meant to write, no, the, the new ways are bad and the old ways are good. I think that she was probably writing against unregulated passion, unregulated speculation. Remember that everyone who is unregulated, emotionally dysregulated in some way, uh, is in for a fall in Austin. We look at Tom's, Tom Parker's passion for Sanditon. Um, E.J. Cleary uses the word libidinal to describe it, right? He is so passionate about it, just like Sir Edward Denham's passion for unregulated villainy. Right. And right. I, I think what she must have been going for was to say, look, speculation can be good, but we have to be smart about it. I think that must have been the conclusion that she was building towards. But I don't we can't know. So what do you think, Kristen? I mean, after all this context, it still seems to me like it could go one way or it could go the other. Oh, yeah. No, we don't know. We don't know. Read E.J. Well, Cleary. And well, it's we also just... don't know what other characters will bring to it. I mean, we barely meet Sydney, but he's clearly going to be. Maybe he will temp be a genius and temper Tom's. Yes. Uh, is this going to be like a happy ending story? Because if so, then Sanditon will probably be all right. Or is this going to be a par- parable about colonialism? Are they going to try to oh, exploit? <laughs> Are they going to try to exploit Miss Lamb in order to save Sanditon? Yeah, I don't she know. Clearly, seems to be the mark, right? This is interesting because you can place your own, because there's so little that got done other than just setting it all up. You can basically have it go any way you want. Yes, a choose your own adventure novel. Uh, If you could have a conversation with Jane Austen, would one of the questions you'd ask her be how does Sanditon end? Oh my God. And can you believe how long, you know, she was ill and I'm sure they had nothing to do. They were sitting in this little house in Winchester and and Cassandra was never like, so Jane. No, so Jane. Before we die. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm sure she wouldn't. You have to be delicate in situations like that. But uh, like, but I honestly, I kind of think it's more fun that we don't know. Because you know, doesn't it seem like she's the type of article. Her plots are so well plotted. I can't imagine keeping that all that in your head. Don't you think there was somewhere she wrote down an outline, or um, she must have had to plan these things out on paper to keep it all straight? Don't you think? I don't know. She was a genius. I guess. It's hard for me to be, I mean, I can't even go to the grocery store without writing everything down and then getting home and being like, oh, fuck, I forgot that was <laughs> I can't imagine trying to write a whole novel and keeping it all in my head. Um, <laughs> That's probably a poor, this is why I'm not a genius. No, you're absolutely right. You do need to write these things down. And I'm sure she had a scrap of paper somewhere that got, you know, thrown away. I don't know, but it's burned it. I think it's probably more fun not to know than for it to be written and for us to be like, well, Austin clearly didn't understand supply and demand because economics really doesn't work. You know, like her genius is unsullied. She just she hasn't made any like, you know, um, uh, naive assumptions about how the economy works that we (laughs) is unsullied. (laughs) But I also want to know what happened. Yeah, me too. What she would have, I am certain, she would have argued for. It would have been convincing no matter which way it went out. And it would have been like, well, of course, this is how it was always going to end. I am certain she would have argued for regulation. Regulation. Mm. So I think Sanditon will succeed, but there are things yet to happen. I think if 
we continue on the trajectory she has laid out, Sanditon would not succeed. But I think Sanditon will succeed because there are things that were going to happen later and to have it make more sense. Everything like, else. Someone will come along and be like, okay, I'm actually smart and know what I'm doing. Let me do this. Yeah. Everything that Austin ever wrote was about regulating your passions. Right. And this is just a different kind of passion. That is my pronouncement that. on the matter. I'm thinking about that. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I know like everybody writes their politics into, or everybody sees their politics in Austin. Absolutely. Everybody does. I think that everything that Austin wrote was about people who have self-awareness and people who don't. Very true. That's what I think. Mr. Parker is so relatable and he says something early on that makes him like me so much. When he's talking about Lady Denim, he says, well, we, she and I, let me just say we think differently. People who tell their own stories cannot be trusted. You need to see for yourself. I just, that made him, me love him so much. It makes me think he's, yeah. not, a, he's not a villain. Oh, um, no, no. I think Mr. Parker is a really great and nice and interesting character. I think that we also all know people who won't shut the hell up about something. And you're like, if I have to listen to to Kristen and Maggie talk about Jane Austen one more time, I'm going to punch them. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, people who won't shut the hell up about something is Jane Austen's bread and butter, right? Why doesn't Mr. Parker just go start a podcast if he likes Sanditon so much? Yes. So here's the last thing that I want to write. Jane Austen, as you know, went to many seaside resort towns, especially when she was living in Bath. She was close to the sea and she, she, she went to them all, right? She did a huge tour. She loved the sea. Her brothers were in the Navy, right? So um, some people cite this passage as support for the fact that she wanted Sanditon to secede or she loved Sanditon or she loved spa towns. At Trafalgar House, rising at a little distance behind the terrace, the travelers were safely set down. All was happiness and joy between Papa and Mama and their children. While Charlotte, having received possession of her apartment, found amusement enough in standing at her ample Venetian window and looking out over the miscellaneous foreground of unfinished buildings, waving linen, and tops of houses to the sea, dancing and sparkling in sunshine and freshness. She, this is a very appealing picture, maybe not the unfinished buildings, but the sea itself was certainly something that she loved. There's well, there's also, I mean, the unfinished buildings, but they're not like um, collapsing a band. Right, it's, right. like, it's like the promise of the promise. Austerity, yes, right? it's a promise. Right. Yes. So on that note, do we want to Let's transition? Talk about the series. Talk about the show. What did you think, Kristen? We've only seen. I love episodes. it. I love it. I love it. I've watched all the episodes at least four times. This is so interesting because I thought you would hate it. It's not Jane Austen, but I never yeah, thought. Yeah, exactly. That That's it, right? You just have to be like. I never thought that it would be. I, I have to say it soothes me. This sounds stupid. I love the score. It's beautifully shot. Yes, yes. The costumes are fantastic. I mean, it soothes me. And I just take so much. It's so light and fluffy and sparkling. It, it doesn't challenge you in any way. It's just extremely amusing. That's so interesting what you said about liking the way it's shot because I actually hated the first two episodes the way they were shot. It's all this very... Did you ever watch Sherlock? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's this very 2010s style of shooting something where it's close-ups of people's faces and blurred behind them. And I hate that. 
I'm sorry. I can't see what's going on. <laughs> the third episode was not like that as much. So I liked it better. But it's so distracting when the camera is, it's very like late Tom Hooper, Les Miserables, right? Like big close up on people's face and everything behind them is blurred. And mm-hmm. I just, I really found it distracting and I hated it. And I say that it's kind of like Sherlock because that blurred background felt very Sherlock to me, which was Stephen Moffat. What, what did you think, think of the, the ball? The ball? I don't remember having strong feelings about it either way. There's a lady singing. Um, oh, yeah, that was weird when she does this, like, uh, well, I, you know, talk about the score. The score does feel very Irish to me. There's a lot of kind yes. of Celtic yes. uh, notes to the score. And I'm trying to figure out, was there a lot of Irish people working immigrants who would have come and be building Sanditon? Maybe that's what they're going for. I don't know. I definitely pinged on that and was a little, I like it, but I didn't really understand it. I think it just gives it a good energy. Yeah. I think it was more like, hey, you know what feels British is Irish music. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, it does give it a good energy. It's kind of similar. If you think about Titanic, there was actually like very Irish, a lot of Irish music in the Titanic score. And that was because the ship was actually built in Ireland. Oh, Um, interesting. And so the composer and... Uh, the director both said it was purposeful. You know, they wanted to have that capture that energy and that feel. Um, I noticed it and I like it. I was just kind of confused. And the part with the ball where that woman is singing that song, um, I found confusing. <laughs> There's a lot of choices in the miniseries I found confusing. And let me tell oh my gosh, this is so funny. I think it's in the third episode. It's when... Sir Edward and his sister, there's a scene with them talking. And when they cut to her, she is wearing the most ridiculously long collared blouse. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Find a picture. Yes. I yelled at the television. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, what are you wearing? What is this? I just find it so confusing. There's so many anachronistic modern touches to the production. It's just extremely distracting to me. I like it. I can't wait for it to air tonight. It's this weird, like, not necessarily hate watching that I have, but it's just, I can't wait to see what happens next. Yeah, where the hell is this going? I yell at it constantly. Oh my God. No, I, this is the thing though. This is what I really felt. Cause a lot of people send me articles about like the costumes and Sanitin and or the costumes and whatever, you know, adaptation and whether they're accurate or not. This is what I really believe. Like they're I like to know. They're accurate though, right? Well, this is what I really believe. It's like the more you know about accuracy and historical costuming, the unhappier your life is going yes, to be. absolutely. 100%. <laughs> if you are just watching it, yeah, like your average viewer is just going to fucking love it, right? Mm-hmm. They're try- And I think what they're actually trying to do with the incest and stuff, like, well, Game of Thrones was popular. <laughs> sure. Um, I do think that they did a great job, but like Charlotte feels a lot like Charlotte from the book. Which I like. They didn't really change her character. I don't think they changed Mr. Parker's character a lot either. 
um, who, by the way, is played by the guy in Love Actually who decides to fly to Wisconsin to hook up with uh, American girls. And that, to me, is hysterical. (laughs) Uh, His face is so distinctive. As soon as he's on screen, I'm like, who is that? I know that actor. (laughs) And I had to, like, IMDB it immediately. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's just I find the way it's shot and the... The costumes extremely distracting. I don't know. I have so many mixed feelings. I have so many strong mixed feelings about it. You know, but I can't wait to watch. So successful adaptation—not adaptation, but successful entertainment. What really got me was the scene with Clara Brereton, where, <laughs> where she's in the, the Doctor Fuchs. She's in the shower bath. I, oh, and she burns herself on purpose? Yes. Spoil, I hopefully, not. we're not spoiling this. Oh, come on. These people, have, if you're listening to a Jane Austen podcast, I have to assume that you've... It was so beautiful to me, the way it was, was shot. And then it was so shocking what she does. Um, I actually made Kevin come and just, like, watch the scene with me. I was like, look at this. Like, and also, I love Dr. Fuchs. I think also Davies, an actor I'm familiar with. Davies is absolutely correct that a doctor was going to have to come on the scene at some point mm-hmm. and he, he delivered <laughs> he's german y'all he's german um yeah, so I, had, I had the same reaction to a different scene involving clara it's after she's burned when she's talking to the sister what is the sister's name esther esther and they have this like epic verbal battle of wills and that where Esther leans over and digs her fingers into the burn and Clara doesn't bat an eye. I loved that scene except for the body horror and obvious prosthetic of the burn. Oh, you didn't need to show that. I thought it was really gross and it also just looked fake, but uh, it was very shocking, which I'm sure they were going for. But those two actresses, I thought, did a fantastic job in that scene. And I was absolutely riveted because you learn so much. She's like, you have no idea what I've endured. And she's like, get out of here. I'm going to kick your butt. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like uh, not kick your butt literally, but kick your butt as we vie for money. Sure. Um. So I really liked that. I don't have any patience for the incest stuff. I think that's dumb. Um, I also don't have any patience for Clara telling Charlotte that she was forced to perform a sex act when clearly that's not the case. Um, that really bothered me. Oh. <laughs> uh, I think that's true. Yeah, because the scene, actually, that's what they say happened. That but later, I mean, to me, it's very clear that Clara knows exactly what she's doing. And she's like, I seduced your brother. Oh. I mean, she basically comes out and tells Esther, like, I'm in control. Ah. Uh. Um, I'll tell you what I do love is okay. Mr. Stringer. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's so the cute. Cutie patootie architect. Is that the builder? I don't know he's what the this foreman. is. Yeah. He's the foreman. Oh, he is so dreamy. I hope that he's actually... The real love interest. You know, like, sometimes you have a, a, a fake love interest and then the real love interest. Yeah. Because I, I really like him. I hope he doesn't die or anything horrible happens to him. Like, his dad got a building dropped on him. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a cutie. I absolutely love him, too. I think that he's great. I'm, t- I'm Team Stringer. There are so many... Com- on the downside, though, there are so many conversations that Davies wrote that clearly came right out of Pride and Prejudice. 
Oh, like, yeah, oh maybe Darcy. I've misjudged you. Like, he turns Sydney into a Mr. Darcy, yeah. and I don't understand it. His, I was really upset when I read a review, and they were like, he's so brooding and blah, blah. And I'm like, did he even read what yeah. we have? Because that's not his character at all. He's like a free spirit. He's the opposite yeah. of broody. Well, Davies is going back to the well that has, has served him in the past. And and then that's, that's, that's it, honestly, it's, a, it's kind of a shame because... They also really try the patience, as we said earlier, with these scenes where he's like, Miss Haywood, it's you again. Oh, God. Constantly, right? The ubiquitous Miss Haywood. I'm like, shut up. God, we (laughs) get it. We get it. Uh, Tom Parker Sanditon is to Sydney Parker, like not shutting up about being surprised to see. Like, there's five people in this town. Are you really surprised? Oh my God, I tried so hard to make something, a meme that I thought was going to be the funniest meme of all time. It's when Charlotte sees Sydney stand up from the sea and she's immediately embarrassed and she runs at full speed with this like horrified expression on her face back to town. I was trying so hard to get a good shot, a screenshot of her face because I just wanted to put the words below the image. I saw a peen. <laughs> <laughs> Because for me, they're always good intentions. (laughs) (laughs) She's so horrified at the sight of a penis that it was hysterical to me. (laughs) I've never seen one before. Although, who knows? I mean, you grew up in a house full of that. She's running, I mean, running full speed away from him. I know. It would have been fun. I would have been the hero of the internet for like 15 minutes, but I could not get a good screenshot of her face because the way it's shot. I think that it's nice that you think that. (laughs) Hey, people love my tweets. I did really love the meme with the grumpy cat. I made that. (laughs) Did you make that? That was great. I I do not wish your family well. It was so good. (laughs) Well, maybe someone else made it before. I'm not sure. But but, uh, it did come into my head and I did make it. I'm still laughing about that days later, obviously, because I just mentioned it. But that one was delightful to me. I was so glad. And people loved my my tweet about Sanditon. Where I... Well, I'm not on Twitter, so I don't... Well, I posted it on Facebook, too. So I took a screenshot of it. So... Actually, someone just mentioned it to me. Someone in my real life who follows our Facebook page mentioned it to me the other day. She was like, I was at work and I saw your tweet about Stanton and I burst out laughing. And that made me so proud. So I'll read it on the podcast. Okay. Because you know what makes for a really great podcast is when people read memes and then explain them. (laughs) It's riveting. No, I'm kidding. I want to hear it. Tell me what it says. (laughs) Me reading Stanton. I can't believe Jane Austen died before she could tell us whether capitalism was good or bad. Oh, yeah, that one. I thought that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was okay. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. Thanks for joining First Impressions. <laughs> no, I think that your your memes are always great. I don't even know how to make a meme. I think you have to have, like, do you have to have that special, like, meme maker program or something to just google meme maker um and there's a free one you can upload any image you want or you can choose a common meme image that they have from a library and then it just yeah it's really easy there are a lot of things that make it really easy now you just google meme maker i'll start making baby yoda memes (laughs) 
this obsession, if you mm-hmm. may not know, if you're a listener of the podcast, that I have now thrown off my love for Jane Austen and accepted Baby Yoda. She only cares about Baby Yoda now. She's wearing a Baby Yoda shirt right now. I am literally wearing a Baby Yoda t-shirt right now. But have you seen him? Come on. <laughs> Maybe I can make a meme of Baby Yoda reading Jane Austen. Oh my God. You know who else makes a ton of Baby Yoda Jane Austen memes is um, Drunk Austen. Yes, because she gets it. She understands. Okay, anyway, Kristen, shall we go see what's at the wheat sheep? Yes, let's go to the wheat sheep. And I think that we will, we can definitely talk about the Sanditon adaptation more when we've actually seen it all. Yeah. Because who knows what delights are in store for us? How many more hand jobs will there be? You know how, I know, a lot more handies for sure. Do you know how, how excited, how freaking excited I was when Lady Denim pulled that pineapple out of the box. Oh my God, the pineapple. Okay, so we're not going to the Wheat Sheep. We have to talk about the pineapple. Because we, we had just talked about it in Northanger Abbey. I basically had to tell Bay all about like what the pineapple means. <laughs> uh, that whole scene was amazing. And I was so horrified by Lady Denim's overt racism. Like, I couldn't even watch. It was like watching The Office where you have to hide your face cripplingly embarrassing yeah oh god it was so bad but it was really good if that makes any sense i know it didn't seem real like something someone would really do but on the other hand um lady denim you know it's heightened reality right and on the other hand everyone was awful they were awful um and arthur just digging into that pineapple (laughs) rotten how perfect was it it just it it was a metaphor (laughs) no it was it was so good though and they're just like stop stop and he's like what actually i thought he was gonna cut his finger off oh (laughs) that's where i thought that joke was going and it was going to cause another crisis like a medical crisis because arthur like cut his finger off trying to cut into a pineapple but fortunately it was just rotten but i mean how long did it take to get that pineapple of course it was rotten great oh oh and before we stop so in the book sanditon lady denim does not believe that sanditon needs a doctor in fact she thinks that having a doctor will encourage people encourage the poor to fancy themselves sick um, thereby talking about the relationship between your mind and your body, right? Like, can thinking you're sick make you sick? That's, that's an interesting question we didn't even get into. But Lady Denim is always saying, we have the C, we have the downs, and we have my milk asses. Meaning asses that were producing milk that uh, that is supposed to be good for you. It's medicinal, right? It's right. supposed to mean yes. And I loved how Davies included a line where she actually says, we have the milk from my asses, which is <laughs> yes. such an obscure, weird thing in the book that we, we do not relate to. Um, and I was so, I was so excited. I squealed when yeah, she the said Davies that. is like, well, if someone uses the word ass, we have to include that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what made me feel better? Ass milk. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about your excretions. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, but seriously, did, we did get some interesting um, emails that we do need to talk about. Yes. Okay. So I will start with our Facebook inbox. Thank you to Anna, who uh, let us know that she watched the 1987 Northanger Abbey that we reviewed in a previous episode. And she said she laughed the entire time at how awesomely weird it was. It and was. She- it's so awesomely weird. That saxophone. 
She says, I noticed the weirdest and most hilarious thing. When they kiss, when they kiss at the end, it is so disgusting and slobbery that okay. there's visible <laughs> of spit just connecting their mouths. I was laughing at it so hard. My husband came in the room and I had to rewind it and show him how gross it was. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And um, then we heard again from our lovely fan, Jennifer, who uh, is from Germany. And she wrote to us about having watched the 1995 adaptation of Persuasion that we reviewed a long time ago in our Persuasion's Adaptations Cage Match episode. (laughs) And um, she came down on, while she she likes uh, Sheeran Hines, but... She still prefers Rupert Penry Jones as Wentworth. Mm. And she says, I know you guys think him harsh and cold in his performance, but I'm a German, a country widely considered to have a more cold and harsh exterior to its people. And I find him very subtle in his emotions. I I thought this was such a funny thing because I just spent some time in Germany and I absolutely know what she's talking about. Um, Did I tell you, I don't remember if I shared this story, but Bay and I, uh, had a day tour in Berlin and we used tours by locals, which I really recommend if you want to find a tour guide. And we met with, we had a private tour guide and we met with her and she said, one of the first things she said to us was now, just so you know, uh, Germans are different at emoting than Americans. And she said, I take a Pilates class that is taught by an American and everything we do, it's you're awesome. You're doing great. And she was, you know, with her little cute German accent, everything's awesome and great and keep going, you know, you're doing the best. And she said, we don't say that in Germany. And she said, I will say it's okay. (laughs) And she said, but I don't want you to be offended. When I say is okay, it's German for is awesome. <laughs> so I really, I just really get what she's saying. And I appreciate, um, I guess I appreciate her appreciation of his performance because they are not demonstrative. Um, and actually being in Germany gave me a lot of insight to my grandmother's character who is from the Midwest because the Midwest, people from the Midwest are basically German. Um if you have relatives from the Midwest, you know what the Midwest of America, you know what I'm talking about. A lot of people who settled in the Midwest were from um, Europe and have that kind of feel. But my grandmother was not demonstrative. She was she was was not one pro. She was not a Mrs. Bennett. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. And it was just really interesting being in Germany and seeing the cultural differences. Um, so I I just found that letter really that email very. Um, interesting and funny i appreciated what she was saying yeah because yeah everybody from the american midwest is like descended from german immigrants right right? or like Swedish, or yeah exactly uh so just think about friend or like everyone nobody wants to complain nobody Mm -hmm. will you know they won't even ask my brother is has this quality too where if i ask for ketchup in a restaurant it's horrifying yes (laughs) why are you doing that why are you bothering them like but i want ketchup (laughs) <laughs> uh so i don't i see what she's saying and so maybe i'll have to go back and rewatch. Yeah, the, maybe uh, we'll ha- maybe i'll have to give it another try yeah. and be like pretend that he's german <laughs> i i fell in love with a german once he was a steward uh an, an air hostess right stewardess steward on a on a lufthansa flight that i took and um he was coming down with the the dinner, tr- the you know the cart with the meals, the dinner, 
And he started speaking to me in German. I mean, why wouldn't he? You know, I'm on Lufthansa. And and so I was horrified. And I was like, is English okay? And he was like, of course. And he started helping me in English. And he served me. And then, and he was the cutest. He was so cute. He was so cute. <laughs> and then once he was done serving me, I, I looked and I said, thank you. And he goes, next time, chum and okay. And oh, winked yeah, at me. I <laughs> think you told me this story before. I was in love. <laughs> it was so next cute. Time, <laughs> Uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> so I have a much greater appreciation for uh, the German way now that for sure. So I look forward to seeing like still waters run deep uh, <laughs> Wentworth performance. I will. Um, so we also heard from our listener, Kate, um, who watched the Davies Sense and Sensibility and had a lot to say about it. And um but her main reason for writing was that one of the things she's been thinking about and the way Darcy behaves when he goes to her, to Hertfordshire in the beginning of um, Pride and Prejudice. And he's so mean, you know, he's so, such a jerk. She says, Wickham's wicked attempt at eloping with Georgiana only happened a few months before he showed up in Hertfordshire. Oh, yeah. This was a really interesting point. I'd never... Yeah, because I'm not clear on the timeline when I was watching it. I thought that that stuff had happened a long time ago, right? Yeah, but no, she's she's absolutely right. I mean, what a traumatic, like, horrible thing. No wonder he's still kind of reeling. Yeah, because Georgiana was 15 when that happened, and I believe she's, like, 16 when Elizabeth meets her, right? And so she says, I always wonder if some of spiky personality has something to do with the effects of that. But, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting point, too. Yeah, definitely. That was brilliant. Good job. Our listeners are so smart. <laughs> yes, our listeners are so smart, and they always say such fascinating things. And we want to thank everybody again for writing to us. And let me make sure that I don't think I missed anybody. But if I did, it was so unintentional, and I apologize. And thank you all again for writing to us. And uh, do we have any other New business, old business? Mm, I don't think so. What do we do? We want to hint at what's on deck for next episode, or yes. no? So February, Emma, the Emma adaptation is coming out. Oh God, yes! Oh my God! Oh, it's going to be insane. <laughs> There's so much wacky adaptations happening. I don't know what to do. Yes, and so um, that is what we're going to talk about next. We are going to talk about the Emma adaptation that's about to come out in theaters in the U.S. I believe the release date is February 21st or something like that. Uh, and by that time, I will be 40. Oh, yeah, that's a right. big 4-0 is on the horizon. <laughs> oh, don't man. know how to feel about it. I feel great about it. It's great. It's you don't have to- I usually don't mind birthdays because I feel like every year gets better. Right. Hey, um, anymore. You don't give a fuck. I mean, I didn't before, but okay. (laughs) It's not like that's going to be a big change. (laughs) All right. The dogs are looking at me like they know. Oh, yeah. Oh, Bingley. Welcome to the fold, Bingley. What a cute name for a dog, Kristen. Oh, thank you. It's perfect. I mean, Bingley basically is like a golden retriever or a Labrador. Yeah, his personality when he came home he was just like crispin bonham carter i was like okay okay you have a dog named bingley i will name my dog crispin bonham carter <laughs> perfect <laughs> <laughs> it really is crispin i want to keep it what a cute. i wonder what he got up to i'll have to read his wikipedia he's like an english teacher now oh my god can you imagine mr bonham carter 
Yeah. Your English. <laughs> oh, adorable. Well, I will. Um, the dogs want to walk. So I will go ahead and say that we have delighted you long enough. Bye.